Guys, I want to get loud all of a sudden. I, I'm Do it. Sorry, I'm loud. I'm, I'm, I'm going to eat. I knew it was coming. I'm sorry, guys. Can't hold I them need back. to do that. It is. It is. You feel like Poseidon chucking that bugger down. <laughs> <laughs> chucking that bugger. Did Boy. you butt out that deer? I did not butt out that deer, but the next one I get, okay, I'm just getting its butt out. Is that little Stevie out here? Drobop. Bow drop. I'm sorry. Bop. Hello. Stay tuned. I'll be back after my seizure. <laughs> Every little chipmunk that was running around, everything's dead quiet. And I went, <laughs> like that just happened. Just happened. I saw what is in essence a nature gasm. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Rutten River Pursuits podcast. Tonight we are gathered around the Sonic Campfire with my good friend... Catfish. I'm Ryan. And I'm Will. And we also have a special guest tonight. We have uh, Kip Adams from the QDMA. How's it going, Kip? Uh, Things are good. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. So, Kip, um, why don't you kind of give us a quick background... um, yeah, for uh, like the two people out there that yeah. don't know who Kip Adams yeah, is. Yeah, for the two deer hunters out there that don't know who Kip Adams is, why don't you give us just a quick background to kind of how you got how you got to where you are with QDMA and uh, what kind of brought you to where you're currently at. All right, sounds good. Well, I'm a Pennsylvania native. I grew up in north central Pennsylvania. Um, grew up in the, in the mountains and, you know, and always wanted to, to be a wildlife biologist and Back when I was going to school, really the only jobs were working for, for state or federal agencies. So I just kind of figured that's what I would do. Um, I got out of graduate school and, and got a job for the state of Florida, worked for their, their Game and Fish Commission for, for several years, um, then uh, moved back to New Hampshire. That's where I did my graduate work and uh, took over New Hampshire Fishing Games uh, Deer and Bear Projects and, and ran those programs for the state. And it was at that time that I uh, found out about QDMA. Uh, this was in the late 90s. Actually, QDMA sent a, an educational flyer to every single state's deer biologist um, showing some of the information that they had on educational materials. So uh, I did a little reading about QDMA, joined immediately, and uh, was a member for a year or so, <clears throat> and then ended up QDMA hired the first or offered the first position in the northeastern U.S. Uh, it was a regional director position out of Pennsylvania, um, I was looking to get a little closer back to home anyway. I loved the organization, uh, applied for the job, got it, and uh, that was 15 years ago. So uh, it's been a great ride. Uh, I've had a great time with QDMA and uh, look forward to another 15 with them. So did you get out of Florida, you know, right after the pythons came in? (laughs) Actually, uh, there was a lot of talk about pythons being in the Everglades when I was there. uh, I didn't see any. I worked just north of that, and uh, I stayed clear of uh, of all of uh, that high water stuff down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet we uh, we were just down in Florida. We had a great time. That was something that we tried to get in on, but uh, you know, like there's all kinds of hoops you got to go through. The our quick trip to the Everglades, though, the guys like they're up there on the what are those things called? The those levees. Or they're what? up on the levees up there. Yeah. Go get go get as many of them as you can. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, it was amazing. You know, I had never been to Florida, had no idea what to expect. Uh, I just figured it was all alligators and water moccasins. But uh, when I got there, I realized there was a lot of things that you could hunt there. Uh, I had a ton of fun hunting osceola turkeys and quail and 
and hogs and, and, and some other things. So uh, it was it was quite a treat. You know, most northerners don't understand uh, how much game they do have there. Uh, but pythons were not one of the things that I did chase around uh, while I was there. <laughs> Can't blame you for that. I tried to steer clear of all the snakes when I was there. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan, not a fan. Yeah. Now, Kip, for uh, when you were spending your time up in New Hampshire, would you say that New Hampshire has a similar kind of geography that we have here to Pennsylvania? There's uh, New Hampshire is certainly uh, extremely mountainous in the northern part of the state. Um, there are there are some similarities to Pennsylvania for sure. Um, the one big difference is New Hampshire is a granite state, so everything in New Hampshire was granite or sand. Uh, very low productivity soils um, because uh, they had a pretty low productivity deer herd. And, uh, and actually, New Hampshire was different in that at that point. It was the only state or one of the only states in the country that was trying to grow deer. Um, all the other states were, were trying to reduce deer herds, but uh, New Hampshire was very different from that. So uh, um, there, there are some similarities, I guess, um, from the mountains and, and then, but very little agriculture in, in New Hampshire. And uh, um, you know, certainly not the, the oak woods that we have here in Pennsylvania and, and nowhere near the productive wildlife habitat okay. that, uh, that we're lucky to have here. Yeah, I I lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire for a while, Kip, and I can honestly say in the little over a year that I was up there, I think I saw two deer the entire time I was there. It just, uh, now that's like towards the coast, like Exeter, New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, but, uh, you know, around that Route 1A, that beautiful drive up along the coast there into Maine, like up towards like Kittery uh, Trading Post type area, I didn't see, I don't believe I saw many deer. And I took a lot. Yeah, right. And uh, I did a lot of walks I have, I have in the a lot woods. On memories from uh, the KTP, the uh, I bought a couple guns there and a whole lot of equipment for sure. Oh yeah, um, Kittery Trading. Yeah, one thing that was really that. surprising because I actually went, when I went to grad school there, I was there three years for grad school, left and went to Florida, and then went back and to work for them. But uh, I vividly remember in the first years there in graduate school, you know, coming from Pennsylvania, I was used to seeing lots of deer and. You know, I kill a deer every year and consider myself a pretty good deer hunter. Uh, the first year I was there, I hunted the entire bow season, and uh, that was literally two or three nights a week and every Saturday and every Sunday. So uh, I hunted a lot, and at the end of that bow season, I had seen a grand total of exactly zero deer. <laughs> I oh, never wow. saw the first deer. So uh, what it did, though, is it really opened my eyes to – to, to learn and to be a good hunter and realize that, you know, in Pennsylvania where we had a lot of deer, you know, you could do a lot of things wrong and still see deer. Um, <laughs> since you get in some of those areas where there weren't as many deer, though, you had to do a lot more things right. So uh, it was pretty humbling that first deer season, but, uh, boy, it really taught me how to be a much better hunter. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, um, and then as far as QDMA, I know you pretty much head up the conservation side of things. You want to touch a little bit on kind of what QDMA entails on your end from the conservation standpoint, because it's, you know, the herd management, the nutrition, the... Sure. Uh, I oversee uh, the conservation department, and, uh, and that really uh, is our REACH program. REACH is an acronym that stands for Research, Educate, Advocate, Certify, and Hunt. And uh, that really is QDMA's core mission goals. Uh, everything that we do fits within that. So uh, I oversee those elements, and from a research end, we help fund research projects uh, on deer and habitat management. Um, we help design research and uh, assist on some of those. Uh, 
from the education side, uh, we you know, this is developing new educational programs, new materials, a lot of writing, uh, a lot of speaking, a lot of teaching. Um, from the advocacy side, we get involved in about a hundred um, issues, either policy issues or management issues uh, a year. Um, it's incredible the number of just really bad bills that are proposed each year that would really hurt deer hunters. And, uh, and most deer hunters have no idea, you know, of those. But uh, we spend a bunch of time fighting those bad bills on, on, on behalf of deer hunters and, uh, and supporting good ones to, to help continue to improve deer hunting uh, programs and, you know, and our future uh, in states across the Whitetails Range. Um, the certify part, that's our, our certification programs. We have... Uh, uh, our Deer Steward, which is our personal certification program, those are classes that the folks can take, um, and our land certification program, which, you know, we're, we're big on habitat and enhancing habitat and, and teaching people how to do that, so that falls within that. And uh, the hunt part, that's actually our hunting heritage or our youth program. And, um, and I don't directly oversee the youth program part of it. We have a, a person who works out of our national office that does that. But the first four components of that, so anything research, uh, education, advocacy, or, or certification uh, related through QDMA, um, I oversee that. And I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have a great staff of folks that work under me and you know, extremely hard workers uh, spread throughout the country that, that work on individual pieces of that. But uh, I, I'm, I firmly believe that I have the best job uh, at QDMA and uh, am extremely lucky to, to get to have my hands in each of those things. Absolutely. Where do I send my money, Kip? <laughs> <laughs> well, if if I could, I'd actually like to follow up a little bit on the uh, the certification side. There, those uh, those programs you offer are they online based, or is that classes that you have to travel to go participate in, or how's that work? There's both. Uh, the Deer Steward class that we have. Uh, there's a uh, Deer Steward one and Deer Steward two. Uh, Deer Steward one is the, the principles of QDM. So it's an actual class. It's a, it's a two-day class that uh, there's about 20 different PowerPoint presentations that, that cover the four cornerstones of QDM, um, the most thorough deer class uh, that's available anywhere. There's not even a college, cl- college course on deer that, that's more thorough than that. Um, that is available in person, and it's also available online. And, uh, so, and it's extremely popular online. Um, just because it's an easy way to take it, and uh, it, it's much le- much less expensive than an in-person class. Um, the Deer Steward Two, that is in-person because uh, while Level One is you know the principles of QDM, Level Two is the application of those principles. So much of Level Two is actually in the field. It's hands-on, you know, with, with no-till drills, calibrating them, looking at cedars, calibrating sprayers, you know, planting. Um, develop or aging deer by jawbones, uh, aging fetuses, um, chainsaws in the woods with trees. So uh, it's a uh, level one is fun. Level two is out of this world fun. So um, we we teach typically two uh, level two classes a year, um, and uh, we just we move them around the country. They're all over the place. Actually, next year this coming uh, summer we're going to be doing two. One of them is in Texas, but one of them is in Pennsylvania, which is pretty cool. Now, do you have to do level one before you can do level two? You do have to take level one first, um, just so that you're um, prepared for level two. So uh, um, historically, we just taught level one in person. So you know, people would come and take that, and then you know, a year or two or three later, they would take level two. Well, uh, several years ago, we filmed a level one. Actually, we were teaching it at Clemson University in, in South Carolina, and uh, an actual class 
Clemson University filmed it, and then we made it available as an online class, and it is extremely popular. Um, Clemson actually teaches it as a, a college course there, but uh, that was extremely popular. And we said, you know, every year we tweak the class a little bit just to make sure it's as up-to-date as possible. So uh, last year, or actually this year, this past May, we did a level one class in Missouri, and uh, we did it in conjunction with Heartland Bowhunters, and, uh, and they filmed it for us. So uh, in beginning in January of 2018, our, our online class is going to be completely updated and, and re renewed, and uh, it'll include a bunch of video clips from uh, from those guys. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of the, the production stuff that Heartland mm -hmm. Bowhunters do, but uh, their, their filming and production is absolutely top-notch. So uh, yeah. uh, I'm pretty excited to see the, the new uh, online version, and uh, it, uh, it includes all of the most up-to-date information there is, and then also the, uh, the, the most up-to-date production uh, work as well. So that would be pretty cool. If people are interested in taking the uh, the first stage of that kit, where would they go to find that at? Is that would that be on your website? Like it is. Yeah, we saw uh, it's right in uh, the shed, which is our online store, right at our website at qdma.com. Um, they can go right there and and get the uh, the online deer store. Now, is there like, let's just say hypothetically, I'm not saying that I am interested, but I'm I'm getting I'm interested. <laughs> um, like, there's not like Kinda. a there's not like a list of like like people who have failed the class out there, is there? In case I don't do so well. <laughs> oh yeah, we 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 publish that list and then highlight it. Oh. <laughs> I appreciate that. Actually, nobody has ever failed it, and the reason for that is we we made it very clear the very first class we ever taught back in. 2006 or 2007 when we started that that uh there, there is a test because we want you to you know to, to do well on it and and you know and take it seriously um but we fully recognize that when we teach it particularly in person it's not like you have time to go home and study so uh we allow the people if they're in an in-person class to either take it by themselves if they want or in a group they can take it with up to two other people you know you can talk through the answers and work together um so nobody fails. When we go to those classes, everybody has a certificate, you know, their, their completion. Um, if there are certain parts of it that you don't do as well on as others, then, you know, we hope that you will look at those and continue to learn more about that. For instance, some people will come to the class, you know, have zero experience managing habitat at all. So, you know, it's extremely intensive, so they get, like, hit in the face with a fire hose with information. So uh, some people don't do as well in that part, but then at least they, you know, they have the materials that we've given them. They have access to all of those to go back, and they can, can study harder on what they need in the future. The online one is a little different in that as you go through, you'll take like a section, and then it tests you on that. So, uh, and if for some reason you, know, you don't make it, um, it will bring another test up again. So you, uh, the longer, I guess the shorter answer is, you're going to pass. You know, nobody fails. That we make sure that we work with you to make sure we teach you as you go through that that you're getting the materials uh, you know that, that you came to get. So, no worries at all on uh, on not passing. And uh, we obviously never ever share any of the scores uh, uh, that, that somebody you know regardless if they do real well or, or not. So, no yeah, worries that's there. Good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> we appreciate you putting his mind at ease with yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that on my resume. Then is that okay too? Heck yeah, and, they, you know, and there's a lot of uh, professionals that use the, the certification once they've gone through that on their resumes. Um, 
Every single class we teach, we have hunters in there, landowners, and natural resource professionals. You know, lots and lots of state and federal agency folks have taken that class. And, um, and typically each year we also have one or two custom deer steward classes that we do specifically for state wildlife agencies. Well, they will contract us to come in and teach that exact class to their staff. And uh, we've done that with a bunch of states. Uh, in 2017, we did that with uh, the Georgia DNR hired us, um, the Ohio DNR hired us um, to come in. So it's a great training for them as well, um, particularly given that, you know, that there are just fewer and fewer people coming through college today you know, that have a real strong deer background, or in some cases even a hunting background. So uh, they really benefit from the training as well. And uh, so, and I'll tell you this, you know, we taught this for years before actually a state wildlife agency biologist um, had the highest score in the test. <laughs> um, and the reason being most wildlife curriculums and colleges, you know, focus heavily on population management or, you know, or managing a certain species. But you know, they don't focus at all or very little on managing habitat and, uh, you know, managing hunters. So uh, we will, what we see is a state agency guy will come in or a girl will come in and do extremely well on the test, like on the, the deer herd management stuff, you know, but not do as well on the habitat. And you would have some just hardcore deer hunter, QDM guy, you know, managed a little bit of habitat that kind of was exposed to that and was just so passionate about it that the he or she, would, uh, would have the highest score in the test. And it was it was several years before we had an agency person actually um, have the highest score. So, yeah, wow. uh, so I think that's pretty cool. I think it's very cool, you know, that there are hunters out there, and, and I'm sure you guys run across them as well, that are, that are just so into, you know, learning what they can about deer and habitat and, and you know, monitoring deer through camera surveys and such. That, uh, and they're just really into it. And they're smart people, you know, very passionate, and it shows. Absolutely. I, I was just thinking about this uh, and, and how it kind of can really, really benefit. And maybe you can, ex you know, kind of we can explore this, but like the how it can kind of benefit the the Pennsylvania hunter in particular. You have the city kind of urban deer. You have the mountain deer. You have the, the agriculture. The agriculture deer. Yeah. Uh, you have these different ecosystems, and they're all kind—they're all different. And and then, and then you go from uh, somebody has 850 acres, and then somebody has 35 yards in their backyard, <laughs> you know, where there's just a tree line. Um, I, I'd kind of like to dive into that a little bit, like how you know how does this kind of translate for the PA hunting? Well, one of the things that we teach as a class is we spend a fair amount of time early in the class just talking about deer biology and, uh, and what the latest research shows. So we go heavily into exactly how deer see, how deer hear, what the GPS studies show on how deer move, when they move, why they move, where they move. So uh, kind of cover the groundwork with all of that and then get into more of the management-related stuff. So uh, even though you're correct, you know, there are big differences in landscapes and, you know, property size and all that in Pennsylvania and any other state, um, if the students understand, you know, the principles behind deer biology first, um, then it's a little easier to be able to, to show them how to apply them best to their specific situation. And uh, I always say one of the coolest things about deer is that there's no one-size-fits-all recipe for how to manage them. You know, and that's a good thing because if everywhere deer work, you manage them the same way, it'd be incredibly boring and nobody would want to be a deer biologist. <laughs> you know, but the fact that there are many different ways to manage deer, um, all can work extremely well, 
as a manager, it's about picking a situation that works best for you, such as a management regime that works best, you know, in your area with regard to, you know, winter severity or amount of food that's there, whether you're in New Hampshire where there's granite or sand or, you know, you're in a lot of Pennsylvania where we have really good soils and a lot of oaks, um, what the hunting culture is like in your area. Um, you can take all those variables into account and then apply a deer management program that will work best for your situation and one that you are really supportive of. Um, that's what really makes it work, and that's one of the things that's so fun about managing deer and one of the reasons that so many hunters you know, are so passionate about it and get wrapped up in it because, man, it can be a ton of fun. And uh, so we cover all that extensively in the class and show people how to be able to apply that directly where they live, whether they have property or whether they don't. A lot of people that come to the class that don't have any land, you know, they hunt public land, but they still want to understand how to enhance that habitat or, you know, learn all they can about deer. And and that was going to be sort of a question that I was going to ask, Kip, from a, from a devil's advocate type point of view. Like, if I don't have property, 95% of the hunting I do is on public land, um, and the majority of that, especially in rifle season, is upstate in what they call the big woods in and around State College. And... You know, I don't have an opportunity to do much land management because it's state forest or other public land. Uh, but there are principles and concepts that I can learn from these classes that I can apply uh, to help manage the herd where I'm not necessarily cultivating the land. Yes, absolutely. No, there definitely are. And uh, and we take great care to make sure that, that we, we cover that end of it because uh, one of the misconceptions about QDMA is that you know, all QDMA members are these big property owners. But the reality of it is that's not true at all. Uh, 35% of QDMA members do not own any land. Zero. So other than maybe, you know, a quarter of an acre that the house sits on. You know, our CEO, Brian Murphy, who's a wildlife biologist and, you know, just a hard, hardcore deer hunter, uh, he doesn't own any land other than what uh, his house sits on. So, you know, we know organizationally if over a third of our members don't own any land, you know, it's not very smart for us to just talk about or talk cater to hunters who do own land um, because we'd be alienating, you know, a big portion of our members. So we certainly spend a lot of time teaching people how to enhance habitat because, you know, we have members that do, but we understand uh, a bunch of our members don't own any land, so uh, we make sure that we take care of things for them as well, you know, teach them about deer and how they can en enhance their hunting on state lands. Um, as well as making sure that we work with state agencies uh, to enhance the, the quality of those habitats on state lands. Because let's face it, you know, there's, there's a lot. We're lucky in Pennsylvania for sure to have, you know, over 4 million acres of public land that we can hunt. But uh, um, it doesn't do us any good to have a lot of access to land like that if it's poorly managed. So, um, so we do, we work closely with the Game Commission. Some of our QDMA branches work with their local uh, PGC folks and actually conduct habitat projects on state game lands, which, uh, which I think is really cool and uh, is, a, is a great thing for those local communities because then all hunters in those areas benefit. Yeah, that, that brings up something interesting, Kip. I, I know uh, I don't think anybody, everybody realizes, but QDMA is similar to that of other organizations like NWTF where you guys use your money to help better areas on public property for the general good of the hunting public, correct? That is correct, yep. It, it's one of those benefits that all of us can 
can benefit from by joining organizations that practice the conservation of these animals like NWTF, like QDMA, that it benefits us as individuals, but just us as a hunting community in general. That's right. And because we fully recognize, you know, that the goal is to have good deer hunting. And uh, for those that have access to land or own land, man, that is perfect. We have information to help you. And for those that don't have their own land, um, we fully understand that because, you know, there's a lot of QDMA folks that don't either. So we want to make sure that we have information for them as well, but also um, do what we can on some of those public lands to help make it better. So even if you don't own land, that you still have a good place to go hunting. Hey, Kip, can we start to talk a little bit about what you uh, personally like? I mean, what, tell me, your, like, what do you like to hunt and, and your preferences? And, and I, uh, I can guess it's a lot of deer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we need that 50,000-foot view of Kip. Of Kip yeah. out. QDMA, just, just Kip. I certainly like deer hunting. Um, I grew up uh, I grew up with a turkey call in my mouth and um, started small game hunting. And, uh, you know, just couldn't wait to, to, to get to deer hunt in the fall. But uh, my dad was very, very strict about making sure that, uh, that I learned how to hunt small game first. Um, I got to hunt deer as soon as I was old enough. But uh, it, deer hunting was not the first thing I did. It was a lot of small game hunting. Um, because in his mind, it taught me woodsmanship skills. It taught me, you know, how to be a hunter. Um, you know, sure, I could sit at a target and, you know, hit the bullseye pretty regularly or, you know, hit clay pigeons in the backyard. But, hey, let's just take that to the woods, you know, translate being a good target shooter, you know, to being a good hunter. So uh, I am a firm advocate of uh, taking kids small game hunting, and really that's where they need to start learning. And actually QDMA is an organization that we, we firmly believe that deer hunting is not the best first thing for people to hunt. You know, it should be small game. So uh, um, today, um, I still I still love to call turkeys. Um, I love to hunt deer. I like to hunt deer more than anything else. But uh, I have two young kids, and uh, I have an 11 year old daughter and an eight year old son. And uh, up until, gosh, four or five years ago, I had really gotten out of small game hunting, you know, and just concentrated almost totally on deer hunting. But uh, when my daughter you know, was coming along, I thought, ooh, you know what, I need to start teaching her about small game hunting and, and the way that I learned. So I really got back into it. I had absolutely forgotten how much fun squirrel hunting is. So, uh, you know, and I remember that's what we do as a kid because it is that much fun. So uh, I, uh, I certainly get a, a fair amount of small game hunting in now, squirrels mostly. I, I spend the vast majority of my time chasing deer for sure. Um, and if it wasn't for out-of-state hunts, um, I would have very few sits by myself, <laughs> oh, uh, which is I'm, I'm very I'm very lucky that both of my kids like to hunt. So uh, this year, actually in Pennsylvania, uh, I was never alone during deer season. You know, either have my daughter or my son with me, um, and, and I think that's pretty cool. At some point, they'll be old enough, and they they probably will want to do their own thing and uh, won't want to hunt with me every time. But uh, um, I certainly treasure those times with them now, and I'm glad that they like to hunt, that they want to go. So certainly teach them all I can about it, and uh, I, I so I like to hunt turkeys and squirrels and that stuff too. But uh, I am I am I'm a big turkey hunter and a big squirrel hunter. I am a fanatical deer hunter. Nice. <laughs> hey, if you could use some of your influence on, uh, maybe we could get a small game Sunday. 
trying to di- that be great that di- would be phenomenal it would diversify um, our hunting a little bit I would, like you know i'd love to get out and squirrel hunt but you're just you get so focused on big game it's I'm actually uh, in the same situation that Kip just described uh, with my kids. Like, I just fell in love with turkey hunting again, or I'm sorry, with squirrel hunting again here in probably the last two or three years. Uh, my my oldest daughter's 15, my son's 13, and my youngest daughter is nine. Yeah, and you know they they want to go all the time. My oldest is yeah, she's borderline now. She's got a lot of sports activities and stuff going on where we had to you know pull away from it a little bit. But man, I forgot. Just like Kip was saying, I forgot how much fun squirrel hunting is. Yeah, yeah. And I know it It was probably three years ago now, um, the first three or four, I guess, the first uh, time that my daughter was trying to kill squirrels. So uh, we went out, and I, she had a twenty-two, and uh, and I made, I made her shoot open sights at least the first time. You know, I wanted her to really be a part of it. And we hunted for a couple hours on a Saturday, and it was one of those days that was just perfect. There was just squirrels everywhere. Like, the, the temperature was right, the weather was right. It was just a lot of activity. And in that two hours, she shot 19 times. And, uh, and we came home with exactly zero squirrels. And uh, <laughs> it really opened her eyes because she was a great shot. And, uh, you know, she said, she said, Dad, I can hit the target. I don't know what's going on. And... You know, it was just, you know, kind of one of the first steps in her journey as a hunter, realizing how different it is, you know, shooting an animal than it is shooting a target. And uh, what I told her when we got back, I said, you know, so we shot 19 times, but there was at least, you know, half a dozen or a dozen additional times where she almost got a shot, you know, but then squirreled back behind a tree or, or whatever the case was. So it was amazing from the first shot to the last how much she had learned about getting herself in position to be able to shoot, because at first she's standing there, okay, there's a squirrel. All right, let me try to get ready, and wait, what, that is, the squirrel's gone, you know, yeah. to the last shot, anticipating where it's going to be and just putting herself in a better hunting situation. So uh, we left that day, had a phenomenal day, and I uh, said, you know what, now that you have seen this and experienced this, we put a scope on her gun, went out the next Saturday, and uh, she promptly killed two squirrels. <laughs> so uh, it was a tremendous lesson for her, not just in shooting, but, you know, like really in understanding how to be a hunter. And uh, the 19 shots she took and, you know, the bunch she didn't, said, you know what, that was like, you know, 10 or 20 years of experience if I would have started her on deer hunting. Yeah, you know, yeah. How many times did you get to shoot at a deer a year? Did that, know, not uh... very many. So uh, <laughs> just the, the amount of opportunities with, you know, experience of, you know, gun on fire, shooting, checking the background, make sure you're safe, you know, shoot, oop, gun back on safe, all of that. You know, you couldn't get that much that much knowledge or experience, you know, for at least a decade of deer hunting. So I'm a big believer that everybody who starts somebody hunting, junior hunter, youth hunter, or even an adult hunter, you know, who starts, um, they should start on small game. Absolutely. Did, uh, did that ammo come out of her allowance? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, the fact she's a lot like me, she was not afraid to, uh, to shoot. To throw some lead, so uh, I was glad uh, to be buying yeah, buddy. and uh, take care of that for. <laughs> nice, absolutely. Kip, we have a broad range of listeners. What would you say, kind of, the key principles are for somebody that's getting into deer hunting? You know, somebody wants to go out in the woods. What should they really focus on? Should they be focused on cover? Should they be focusing on food? Should they be focusing on where? they think other people are hunting to avoid those areas that are hitting the pressure. What do you think 
if you gave had to give the Kip Adams strategy or tips for how to be a successful hunter in the woods, what would you kind of throw out there to our listeners? Well, you know, between food and cover that deer need, um, they obviously need both. Well, I tell people is if I could only have one or the other, I'd take cover every time. Because if you have food or you're in an area of food, deer are going to go there, but they may go there after dark. You know, in particular, they're pressured, so they may not be there during shooting hours. Whereas if you have cover, you are always in the ballgame because deer will be in that and use that. So, uh, so I'm a big fan of hunting cover and, um, and using cover to my advantage. Now, it doesn't mean that I, I forget about where the food is, but uh, I am much more likely to be hunting closer to cover than to food and uh, just using that, you know, as a way to watch where deer are going to leave that to go to the food or, you know, get back in there, um, say, in the morning after they leave the food. So I definitely would concentrate on cover, um, particularly if I am in a situation um, where there's a lot of hunting pressure. Um, state game lands um, can be an example of that. Or even a lot of private lands, where, you know, if there's a bunch of people hunting or those deer are being bumped. So, uh, um I know some of my good friends who are great hunters that are much more concentrated on food, and I think that works much better in real low hunting pressure areas. But, uh, man, if those deer are being pressured at all, I'll take cover every day of the week. Absolutely. And, and uh, Kip, if we could, I know we were trying to get to learn a little bit more about Kip, but I need to ask you a question. <laughs> you, you, mentioned, okay. you mentioned something earlier about um, – GPS studies, and I know you uh, had went to school Penn State. Are you familiar with the study that they, I think they released some results two years ago about the GPS collar studies that they had done on white-tailed deer in and around the State College area? Well, I, I'm, I'm aware of at least uh, most of the studies they've done in Pennsylvania, if not all of them. Uh, we, we follow very closely with the major deer research like that uh, throughout the country to report on it in our magazine to our members so that uh, they're always up to date on the current research. Um, there's a lot of really neat movement data that's going on around the country, um, and I'm extremely proud that, that nobody is doing it any better than Penn State is. Uh, Dr. Diefenbach uh, and his students have done top-notch work with that. So uh, actually we had Dwayne at our national convention this summer to present on some of his recent uh, movement studies with the GPS collars. So uh, um, I I'm guessing that I have read it, but uh, is there something specific about that that, well, that you wanted to ask about? Well, I mean, I mean, obviously I think a lot of the studies are going to yield some of the same results. I was wondering if you could just give us a quick overview of uh, just how amazing some of these results ended up being where you're you're seeing deer um, that are collared and 11 months out of the year these deer have I, I, you know for lack of a better term a home range of about a square mile and then all of a sudden there's three four weeks out of the year where they just they're three miles outside of that home range and for those three to four weeks they move maybe a hundred yards and then boom <laughs> they go right back to it yeah, Dwayne has some really neat maps um, that, that he uses during his presentation showing that, you know, and how those deer, as soon as those hunters hit the woods, how those deer just get to those real secure areas and, you know, movement on a daily basis drops, and uh, they certainly know how to survive. And so uh, there are other studies that have shown that same thing. I personally have not seen any better map than uh, what the Penn State folks have created to show that. They are extremely... Uh, good maps, and, and certainly it's anybody who looks at one of those, it's really clear 
you know, how much better deer read us and our behavior uh, than vice versa. Yeah, and, and that's really what I think, <clears throat> excuse me, that's really what stood out to me was how, yeah, they were, they were literally reading us. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't get over it. Yeah. Really? Yeah, steepest, nastiest, thickest cover. They just go, and they're in it, and they stay in it till we're done. Yeah. Then they go right back to what they were doing. Yeah. Because I have, I've got spots where I run trail cameras. I don't necessarily do surveys uh, with them per se, but, you know, i got cameras running for the b- better part of the year in some of these areas, um, just big woods, state forest. And uh, I get tons of pictures of deer, huge buck, all through the summer as they're shedding their, their velvet. Beautiful buck. We hunt up there. Eight to ten guys in camp every year for the first three days of rifle season. And out of eight to ten guys, we see about six doe, you know, in three-day time frame. <laughs> you know, they just, they're gone. It's amazing. Dr. Carl Miller from the University of Georgia um, had a student in Pennsylvania a few years ago. And actually it was in uh, north-central Pennsylvania near St. Mary's um, catching mature bucks, collaring them in a, in a, in a heavily forested area. To study them, just to look at, hey, you know, is the movement in this area the same as it is in other parts of Pennsylvania or other parts of the country? And uh, one of the really cool maps he had was, you know, this, this big buck, and actually was living right in the back side of this little development outside of St. Mary's. And uh, the movement data showing the same thing that Dwayne's folks had seen. But uh, the one thing that was real telling, it was opening day of deer season. Um, that deer, like at daylight, was right there in the back of that development. You know, by 7, it actually was in a food plot. And then by, like, 8 o'clock, it was at the edge of a food plot or an inner opening where definitely a killable deer. And then I'm sure hunters came in the woods there or just got to that or whatever. So it was, like, two hours after daylight. You could have killed that deer. And then that joker took off and just was gone. <laughs> and I'm sure he was still within his home range, but he went to a remote part of it and then uh, got to an extremely rugged area, very secure, and then uh, just camped out there and then just waited. So, um, you know, and one of the researchers looking at it said, look, you can't kill this deer. And I told him, I said, you know, I disagree. That deer was killable for about two hours until hunters <laughs> hit the woods, and then it was over. And then I agree with you. He was unkillable then, which I think just adds to it even more, or some more support for the fact that, you know, as soon as those hunters are in the woods, those deer immediately are, are behaving or are reacting, you know, to what we do. So, um yeah, we and definitely educate us know from a hunting Absolutely. how how careful we need to be and not letting them know that they're being hunted because uh, it was extremely clear that that deer knew pretty quickly um, what was going on. So uh, if somebody had been sitting there right off the bat, they could have had a crack at him, but uh, right after that, then now nah, the game was over. He was going to live another year. Yeah. Now, now, Kip, that brings up an interesting point. Um, Obviously, PA, we have a very high hunting pressure uh, situation. Do you guys notice at QDMA that the deer movements fluctuate between states just based off of sheer hunting pressure or sheer, you know, food sources and habitat? There's de- there is a definite um, difference in some of the behavior on deer. Um, strictly because of hunter numbers. And actually, Pennsylvania has more hunters per square mile than any state in the country. And uh, we, QDMA, has done a bunch of research on this. Um, you take the average hunter or average western state, um, it's about one hunter per square mile. Uh, in the southeastern U.S., they average about six hunters per square mile. 
The Midwest averages about 600 per square mile. You get to the Northeast, and it almost doubles. We have about 1,100 per square mile. And Pennsylvania leads that list. There are almost 2,200 per square mile in Pennsylvania. That is crazy. Holy buckets. You know, this is as of uh, four or five years ago when we did that data. We've lost some hunters, so it might not be quite that much now. But, uh, you know, I've, I've used that in some of the presentations I've given. You know, one of the reasons that some states move a lot more bucks into the mature age classes um, has a lot to do with hunter densities. And uh, Iowa is a perfect example. Iowa has about four and a half hunters per square mile. Pennsylvania has 2,200 per square mile. <laughs> so, you know, that's what does Iowa have everything deer need? Sure. You know, they have great food and great, all of that. But, you know, they have the density of mature bucks that they do more so than any other reason is because they have so few hunters. And so, I would I would argue the fact that two of those four hunters in Iowa are from Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they probably are, or at least uh, when they're lucky enough to get drawn to go there. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, and with that, I tell people it doesn't mean that, you know, you're unlucky to live in Pennsylvania. You know, we're very fortunate that we have the hunters that we do. We're everywhere. Um, it means that things are different. We need to, you know, to manage a little differently than they, they do in some other areas. So it just kind of goes back to, uh, you know, taking your the variables of where you are and, you know, and, and making the best situation uh, managing deer that way. So, you know, is it can we manage deer just like they do in Iowa? No, we, we need to do things a little differently, strictly because of the number of hunters we have. So because of that, a lot more hunter pressure. You know, those deer are bumped a lot more. So, um, you know, is their behavior a little different? There's not a study that says, ooh, deer in Pennsylvania act different than deer in Ohio, but there's a lot of studies now looking at um, influence of human behavior on deer and how it changes movement, such as, ooh, deer suddenly moving more at night. They're not moving as much during the daylight. So um, that comes into play big time in Pennsylvania where we have so many hunters. Gotcha. Kip, can you um, – Tell us a little bit, like, we're, I, I think that the big phenomenon that, that really impressed me this year, um, at least through social media and, and, and the things that I'm getting to uh, see come across my feed, is uh, there's bigger bucks this year coming out of PA. I, I mean, is that accurate, or I'm, or it's, I'm just kind of, I mean, because I, I, I think that that, <laughs> Three on, you know, the the restriction. Yeah, we're, three on one side. We're reaping the rewards, I think. Is now. that's that's For starting to uh, restrictions really come into play? Is that accurate? That is very accurate, and you know, and what we see, you know, year after year, just the average size buck in Pennsylvania, you know, continues to get a little larger and a little larger. And part of it is we're just moving more deer, you know, past the, the two-year-old age class into the three-year-olds, and suddenly, you know, we have hunters that have never seen a two-year-old buck kill two-year-olds, and after they kill a few of those, they say, you know what, I've killed some of them, but what happens if I wait until a deer is three? And obviously at two, they're not nearly as easy to kill as they were at one. And uh, so suddenly you get some three-year-olds out there, then some four-year-olds, and you know, and we had tremendous habitat in many parts of our state. So, uh, you know, good feed for deer. So if we do a good job, you know, balancing that deer herd with the habitat so that those deer get all the food that they need, Man, we can grow some incredible deer. And, and I'll tell you, it's very telling for me because uh, I have a, a taxidermy business that I do on the side. Um, 
PDMA is the science part of my brain, and I really like to balance that. Kind of the taxonomy is kind of the art side, but uh, I have a, a small taxonomy business that I do here and have for the last 15 or 16 years, and it's amazing the number of big deer that I get from Pennsylvania now. Um, I always get uh, a handful or half a dozen deer from the Midwest, uh, Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, the Dakotas, and historically, you know, those deer just dwarfed. Well, I got from Pennsylvania, and, uh, and that's not the case anymore. No, um, no. So some of the biggest deer that I get now are from Pennsylvania. And actually, last year, of I take, I guess, about 25 deer a year, um, including I had deer from Missouri, um, the Dakotas, Illinois, and others. And actually, the biggest deer that I got last year was from Illinois. It was 170-inch deer. The second biggest deer I got was from Pennsylvania. It was 165 inches. Wow. <laughs> Well, uh, it's just incredible. You know, that had never happened in the past. But, uh, yeah, it just there blew is a me away. Now, and it, it's because of the antler restriction and uh, and hunters, you know, seeing, you know, what three or four or five-year-old deer looks like and realizing, wow, you know, I certainly can pass up those younger deer now to, to have a crack at that. How old is the re- antler restriction? Uh, I... It was 2002. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's... It's so long ago, you know, there's a lot of hunters that, that never remember, um, you know, not having it. So each year you just get farther removed from the way that it used to be, and it becomes just more natural, you know, to hunt under the, the antler restriction, and people see the benefits of it, and uh, so we just continue to gain and reap the benefits. I, I just, yeah, I, get, I can't get it over it. I, I remember being a kid, and uh, I had a two uncles that killed eight points every year like clockwork you know and they're just you know they were the baddest hunters i knew and uh, a little, little basket rack and they're points. just yeah they're just but if you got an eight Pencil point thing. back then oh yeah it was That's king trophy, buddy. yeah that was king and uh, i mean uh I, i'm just blown away some of the pictures and it's just you can't tell a difference now i never would dream that you would have a PA deer and an Iowa deer or whatever, and you, I couldn't. They just look massive now. It's just. Yep. So when we go into that four on one side restriction. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that you're ever going to see that here. But uh. <laughs> as long as we're talking about the future of hunting, Kip, I have an odd request. Okay. And I think finally, after all these years of talking about it behind doors with my friends, I might just have found the guy to do it, get it done. Yeah. Yeah. So you have access to all these universities and all these brilliant scientists and labs, and I'm sure you know people that have brains that I can't even comprehend. So they can maybe make my dream vision come true. And I would like the future of hunting in to crossbreed a whitetail with an eastern turkey <laughs> because i don't think that animal would be actually huntable it'd be so smart but i would actually and you it know, needs bear paws yeah and it needs some bear paws it needs some bear paws on it and it needs to <laughs> scream like a bobcat if you can make that happen if you can make that happen, I'd appreciate it. I'm not sure how much work that would actually take. I mean, don't take. tell us if they're already working on it. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't. Here's the thing. Kip just told us he is a professional taxidermist on the side. He could probably make you one. Just one. Yeah. That's good enough. That animal would be amazing to hunt. It would. If it could see like a turkey and smell like a deer, it, you, I, at least I would never kill one unless it ran into my truck. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's, there's an, I, I know there's, there's this this passion and this art about 
know, sometimes certain sounds and grunting called deer in and rattling can, you know, spark interest of big bucks. But there's always that passion of that intimate talking to a turkey and that talking the language to bringing a turkey to you. I really wish it was that intimate to really try to pull bucks to you the way you can with turkey hunting. Like an elk. Right, like a- exactly. Yeah, I, I'm with you, and uh, and I I tend to do a lot of calling, um, particularly during late October and, and November during in Pennsylvania and, and elsewhere. Um, a lot of um, running bleats, um, to a less extent rattling. Um, partly because it certainly can be effective. Partly just because I enjoy that interaction, you know, with the animals, like with turkey hunting. But even when it works, like it's supposed to a deer. There's nowhere near the the relationship that you have with that animal like you do with a turkey when you're calling it in. No. So I agree with you. The, the whole dynamic is very, very different. No, we need a white-tailed turkey. <laughs> <laughs> I Mar- can't even... uh, Mariam's is probably as close as you're going to get to a white-tailed turkey. <laughs> Kip, uh, so, you know, PA Hunter, we have we have the oaks in, in the winter time or in the fall. As we transition into gun season, what do you think a whitetail hunter should be focusing on as a deer's food source in the in the Pennsylvania woods is you know, the oaks have already dropped their acorns. Where should a whitetail hunter be looking for that sign of food? Um, anything from an agricultural end, you know, particularly now as as bucks are, you know, gonna be stopping the rutting here, at least the peak of it. You know, they could have gone a month without eating, so they're going to be looking for anything they can, high-quality food, to put a little bit of that weight back on before winter hits. Um, you know, it's not unrealistic for bucks to lose 20 to 25% of their weight during the rut. So uh, they really will take advantage of anything that's high-quality food. Um, so if there's an agricultural food source in your area, any standing soybeans left or corn, brassicas, um, if you're in particularly in the southern part of the state where uh, – uh, clover and alfalfa are still very green and growing. Those are dynamite sources. Um, if there's none of that agricultural or food plot uh, in your area, you know, if it's extremely forested, um, they often then are shifting to some of the, the more natural or the native browse. So I'm looking for cut areas, um, young forests, stuff that still have a lot of leaves and a lot of browse right down at ground level where you know deer can feel very secure because there's a lot of cover, but yet there's still a bunch of food there. So, uh, and then if I'm in an area that is high pressure, I absolutely am looking for those cut areas. Uh, it tends to be a lot thicker vegetation, a lot more security cover. Um, deer will be in there more just because it's better cover for them, but then that also facilitates more daytime movement of deer. You know, they feel a little more comfortable getting up and moving around a little bit. Um, I'm avoiding uh, open hardwood at all costs. There's no way I'm going to waste any time in or around big open hardwoods. Um, you know, deer certainly can be chased through there or passed through there quickly. Um, they don't want to be there, and uh, certainly not during daylight hours. So find cover, and uh, particularly if it's a pressured situation, and, and typically you'll, you'll, you can't see as far, but you stand a much higher chance of seeing a deer that, uh, that you can shoot. Okay. Interesting. Now, now, Kip, I have one last question for you because I know we're getting short on time. Will's already given me the look. But <laughs> I, I, I can't let you go without picking your brain on this topic here real quick because you touched on it. If I'm hunting big woods, north central Pennsylvania, um, they've been doing a lot of, you know, select timber or clear cuts in a couple of different areas. Some of it's, you know, um, oil and gas drilling related. Other stuff is actually just select foresting that they're doing. Um 
what's the what's that sweet spot on a clear cut or somewhere that was selected select timber was was taken out where you know they dropped a lot of the the treetops in there and they took the big pieces of lumber out what's what's that sweet spot is it a year later or three years later and like how big's my window before it becomes just it's it's more it sounds really specific it is yeah. <laughs> if he could show me where yeah, to hang my stand it starts getting good a year later because oh, when, when that tree goes a cut and all that sunlight hits the floor of the forest yeah you know the next growing season you get that flush of young stuff so it's the same thing that was cut last winter this year or this fall will be you know the first good year to be there um, so typically the first growing season certainly by the second growing season after the cut and then it lasts seven to eight years. Uh, in this part of the world, at seven or eight years, the new stuff that's growing is up tall enough that it starts to shade out the understory. Okay. So you lose that big benefit of all that food and cover right at the ground. So, uh, so your real sweet spot is from years, you know, one to two growing seasons after it was cut up to seven to eight years later. And then uh, you either need to do something again to that to, to kind of return some of that to that very young stand or uh, hopefully cut something else in an area that's very close to that. So uh, you're giving deer uh, what they need there, too. All right, so, so. I, got a, I got to schedule an outing with uh, with the entire podcast because we got about 12 stands I need to move up in State <laughs> Forest because <laughs> they just cleared out a whole side hill that's on the way to our hunting area. Yeah. So we're going to, you know, this coming summer, uh, we got to move, move everything a couple hundred yards down the ridge. You got so, it. All right, you just let me know where because I'll be hunting – Probably away from that in the thickest cover because that's where you're going to push them. <laughs> uh, before we let you go, I have one more question that may or may not be controversial. Um, the rut. I know there's several different theories out out there. You know, as far as moon phase, daylight, weather. What What do you think, based off of the research that's done? What do you think the general consensus is for? When what kicks the rut off, and when usually the time frame is for that? There's a lot of research on that, and it's all very, very clear. Um, the moon phase has zero to do with with when those deer are breeding. Absolutely nothing. And um, and the way they tell that is they can pull fetuses from does uh, in the winter and the spring, use a fetal scale, and from that be able to figure out the exact day that that doe was bred. So you do that for enough does in an area, and then you get a really, really accurate picture of exactly when the peak of the rut is occurring. Um, they've done that in Pennsylvania. Almost every state has done that. So they know exactly how that peak rut varies from year to year. And then you can take a look at when the full moon falls during that time. And, uh, and so what they found is that, that wherever that moon is has zero to do with, with when those does are being bred. Um, it may have something to do when, with some deer movement, and, and a lot of hunters incorrectly see that deer movement and they are, are calling that, you know, the rut or thinking that's when does are being bred. Um, there's no research that shows that the moon has any impact on deer movement either. Um, a lot of anecdotal stuff, and you hear that all the time. A lot of popular magazines talk about it. Uh, Charlie Alzheimer is a friend of mine, and I know he is – made a career out of his uh, rut charts for the moon and that. But uh, the, the professional community, it's, and there's a lot of research that's done, it's extremely clear that that moon does not impact breeding at all. Um, okay. It's photo period that drives it, so it's the amount of uh, you know, daylight on each individual day in the fall. 
And uh, biologically, that makes a lot of sense because when deer are bred, um, they have three trimesters of, of pregnancy. And obviously, they're bred in the fall. And if it's a really, really bad winter, you know, those does have very little nutrition they can put to fawns. So one of the really cool things about, or to fetuses, I'm sorry, one of the really cool things about deer, though, is that they put almost zero energy into that fetus until the third trimester. So the first two trimesters are when, you know, the winter is the worst and the doe is just trying to survive. The cool thing is the third trimester starts about green up in the spring. So when there's actually green up and more resources for the doe, that's when that fetus starts growing, and almost all growth occurs in that last trimester. So, uh, which is pretty cool how it works that way. Hey, now there's something green for the doe to eat. She can actually uh, grow that fetus. And then that makes sure that the fawn hits the ground, you know, at an optimal time. So think about it. Sometimes, you know, that, that full moon in the fall, it, you know, can sway by up to a month. So there is no advantage for a fawn to be born, you know, a month earlier in the spring than when things are really green, or, you know, it's not as advantageous to be born a month after when most of them are born. So yeah. uh, it's, yep. very, it's very good that the photo period does drive that, and that then those fawns, are, so the does, majority of those anyway, are being bred on time. That doesn't mean that some aren't bred, you know, a month or two earlier or later, because that does happen. We know that. But the fact that the majority of them are bred over a very short window, that's what's most important. Okay. In Pennsylvania, you know, between the 10th and 20th of November, year in and year out, um, that ensures that our fawns are hitting the ground at the optimum time in the spring, and that uh, gives them the best chance to grow as much as they can before fall. And it also ensures that there is good cover in the spring to hide them from coyotes and bears and bobcats and, and other things are trying to eat them. So uh, we're lucky that it is driven by photo period. Yeah, that's very interesting. That well, bring, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. go ahead. That brings up one last question that I have, Kip, for you. We're talking about, like, the population of of deer in Pennsylvania and how Will said the bucks are getting bigger, and I totally agree with that. I've seen bigger bucks in the last three years than I have since I was 12. And when I was 12, we saw a couple big bucks here and there, but nothing like now. Uh, there was a giant period there where uh, to get an A-point was pretty amazing. However... Is, in your opinion, as a Pennsylvania native, is getting kids into small game hunting is as important as that is to you? Is it as important for people to take up to predator hunting coyotes and, and foxes and things like that in Pennsylvania? Because I don't, I mean, me as a predator hunter, I don't really run into other guys predator hunting at night. You know, I don't, I don't think that's a big, you know... I don't know if coyotes are as big of a problem as people say they are in Pennsylvania, um, but they're extremely smart, and I don't think that uh, – I mean, it's my opinion. I've seen them. They've come into the calls. I don't think that uh, people give coyotes their due credit. I think there's more than we think there is. Well, I think there's certainly a lot of them, and, and I think they're probably about the hardest thing to kill from a, you know, from a hunting perspective is why you often don't see a lot more people out hunting them. Um, um, I, I think small game hunting is more important to get folks involved with, um, partly just because there's a lot more opportunity for that. Um, from a predator end, I hunt predators. I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, from a hunting end, though, we're never going to kill enough coyotes to have an impact on their populations. No, they're um, too hard to hunt. Right, and, and you have to remove such a high percentage of them to, to even make a dent in them. But uh, 
So I tell people, you know, you're not going to reduce coyote populations or anything, but as far as hunting, you know, go fun or go hunt and just have fun doing it for the recreational end of it. Um, I also love to try it. Um, but between predators and small game, I think it's a lot more important if we could only have them do one to get folks involved with small game. Mm. I that agree. makes sense. I agree. I got you. Absolutely. Well, Kip, we're pretty much uh, out of time. No, I got one more question. <laughs> <laughs> I could ask him questions all night. Oh, yeah. yeah. We could keep we going. Could. I, I, yeah, I, hate I to crossed th- a couple off my list. Yeah. Did uh, you? I was like, no, nah, I can't ask that. No. Thank, thanks for answering the questions that we had, Kip. We appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with us, and it was very informative. And uh, we definitely look forward to talking to you again here soon. It's been great. Good deal. Well, I appreciate it, guys. I had a good time. And uh, everything that I've talked about uh, is available on our website at qdma.com. If anybody wants to go and, you know, and find that or find additional information or whatever, uh, um, they can grab it there for free. And, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed myself. I look forward to talking to you guys again. So uh, certainly good luck uh, uh, this season. Thanks, Kip. All Thank right, you. Have a great night, guys. Right, thanks, you See too. Wow. My whitetail brain just exploded. As well as should have. Yeah. Yeah. That was a wealth of knowledge in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I wish uh, we had more time. Like, all the time we got guys like that that pop on the show and it's just, man. Yeah. I should keep my questions for the next genius that we get to talk to. I mean, <laughs> I have so many questions. At least this one didn't rip on you. Yeah, that's true. We didn't keep him on the line long enough. It's good we got him <laughs> off. <before we> <laughs> He's very generous to, to your eye. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't ask any really dumb questions this time. <laughs> well, my last name's Dahlberg, Ryan. <laughs> Did you ever tie one of those Adams flies? <laughs> oh, well, my name's Kip Adams. Of course I have. Oh, <laughs> son of a... You didn't put two and two together? <laughs> Come on, right? The whole county around here is named after him. <laughs> awesome. Uh, no, he's, he's a great guy. And like I said, uh, when we talked to him, I mean, he has... He's done it all from his studying that he did at Penn State, moving to Florida, then up to New Hampshire. Now he's back yeah. in Pennsylvania. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he knows his stuff. Yeah, you name it. He he's dabbled in it. Black bears, white tails, whatever game he dealt with in Florida. Pretty much all of it, <laughs> probably. Everything but pythons. Everything, everything but pythons. Um, but yeah, Kip Adams, great. Great host, wealth of knowledge. Um, strongly recommend you guys check out the QDMA website and just check out Kip Adams individually because uh, guy is a very sharp dude, knows his stuff when it comes to whitetails, and writes some great articles as well. So awesome! And yeah. he's gonna make me a whitetail turkey <laughs> with bear paws. <laughs> with bear paws. Yeah, it's gonna, gonna be amazing. It's gonna it's be gonna glorious. Spray like a skunk. <laughs> he didn't bring that up. He should have. So. Having said that, uh, Kyle, do you pass up any deer? Yeah, I passed up a couple. Um, <laughs> let's just say, come our, on, man. You know, well, I'm sorry. You know, I'm tr- I'm trying to out- I'm trying to best my last the last buck I got. It's hard to do. Let them go so they can grow. I guess that doesn't apply in Pennsylvania. We just talked about that. We did <laughs> twenty two per square mile, dudes. He's going to grow a good bit till he crosses over the hill and gets shot by the guy on the neighboring property. <laughs> hey, you never know. <laughs> he might just hunker down just out of range. Hunker yeah. down they do. I can uh, attest to that. Yeah. 
Penn State study proved that one. Um, yeah. So it's been quite the deer season for us, fellas. It's for you. No, I've, I, I've everyone. Had a, I've had a phenomenal deer season. I just, it's been uphill, and both ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me, the 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 trouble really has been just getting the legal antlers in bow range. Yeah, I saw a lot of buck, had a lot of doe come through, but just nothing um, with three or more on one side. And I wasn't going to be picky this year because I'm. Focusing on getting the kids out there and uh, getting them connected. But uh, just couldn't make it happen. Should have taken some notes from you then on that one there, Ryan. Not (laughs) not being picky. (laughs) I should have took some notes from Ryan, actually, because I was dead set in my ways about fishing to the last second. And then the six days off I had in archery season, it rained five of them. And I don't I mean just rained, rained, like yeah. downpour, mud rain. And um, I didn't get as much time out there as I normally do this year. And preparing for rifle season was has been um, pretty busy for me this year. With uh, We've taken – we're going to take my dad out again this year. So dad got a new toy. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. I drove down to almost North Carolina, Southern Virginia, and got Dad what's called an action track chair, and it's like a wheelchair with tank tracks. That thing looks badass. Um, I've tested it. I can't say it's not super fun. <laughs> uh, my neighbor's yard's all ripped up because, you know, I'm not ripping mine up. <laughs> Why would you? But, no, it's it's fun, so it'll be cool to get him out this year. Hopefully it'll get him back out in the woods. But it's archery season wasn't total bust. I got a doe. Yeah, yeah. On the one day it didn't rain. Well, let's see, there you go. And I didn't have to do like hardly any work. So, as we said, as I don't know if you heard, Will pulled it out for me, did all the work. So yeah, you called uh, Will's Will's Deer Dragon service, didn't you? I did actually. Yeah, that that's that's exactly how I put that when I call Will and I'm all excited and say I shot a deer and I'm all excited. That just I guess it translates into, hey, when are you getting down here with the honey buns and dragging it out for me? <laughs> I heard that Will's Will's Deer Dragon Service does a lot of that whole uh, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line thing. Yeah. It don't matter what's in the way. you just tell them where the truck is, they just go, right? Yeah. yeah. Briars or nothing, they don't I'll care. I'll make a new it's path, cool. yeah. It's almost like, a, like you know it. when you shoot a you know a duck and you did the water retrieving dog, you just go, you point. <laughs> it's that way. I'm Get him, Will. Get him. Will, you're running into trees. Get out of my way. <laughs> Once I, I, I should have been standing there. <laughs> I'm going to keep like a pair of brush pants and, and stuff like that for the next time I do the, the tracking jobs because, man, is it briary hell. Yeah, it's not good down there. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, what kind? Of, I, I can't even. <laughs> this year's been crazy. I've it's, missed more deer than I've. You know, I missed more deer this year than I, I've shot in the last three years. So, uh, yeah, that, it happens. I mean, doesn't happen to me, but happens to other people. I've heard. Right. <laughs> we've uh, we've had quite the run-in with a uh, a few deer ninjas here on on the R two pro staff. Duckers. Duckers. They're they're quick little buggers. Is that what you meant to text me? 
Duckers. Okay. <laughs> Spell check. I thought I thought you said something different, but Duckers makes sense. Yeah. No, he wasn't wearing Dockers. <laughs> Those deer, are a bunch of Duckers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it wasn't wasn't for a lack of seeing deer. I mean, I think I, I know me personally. I saw tons of deer. It's just a matter of yeah. That that last Saturday, the weather was perfect. Yeah. Um, and I know it, it was actually one of the better days I've had from a stand just as far as activity goes. Oh, and I made it you know, about five and a half hours of daylight on the last day before I had to get out for you know, kids' sports stuff. And I had deer around me all morning. It's yep. just, you know, the buck that were in bow range just, you know, they weren't doing it. Yeah. Uh, seeing buck that were legal, bucks that were definitely shooters, and I see him chasing deer, just, you know, luck of the draw, the spot that I'm in. Yeah, I got a funny story real quick from what's new. So in between the rain and pheasant hunting, what's new this week? I got three pheasants this week too, by the way. So that was good. That's what? great. <clears throat> and between splitting my time with goose hunting on Saturday morning, uh, does take away from archery season a little bit. But so last Saturday it was pretty chilly out in the morning yeah. here yeah. in Pennsylvania. It's like I don't down nineteen low mid twenties. Yeah. So we set up for goose in the morning instead of our going archery hunting. And um, we were sitting inside the corn. We weren't layout blind. And we were three rows back in this corn. And the cut cornfield next to this corn, we had all the decoys in. A few flocks come over and take us a look. We had a couple locked up and flare. And it was a good morning. It was a fun morning. But the fun part was, was we had like six, seven, eight dozen full-body decoys out. And this little four-point buck come out of the woods out of nowhere and just ran up to our decoy set, stuck his chest out, you know, rut season, stomping his foot, snorting, blowing snot everywhere, shaking his head. And we stepped out of the corn to, like, chase him off because geese were coming. And he just stood there and looked at us at, like, I don't know, it was like 25, 30 yards. He, had, he didn't care that we were there at all. He did not like those geese. Yeah. In his area. <laughs> I've never seen it before. And then he ran down the corn row, turned around and ran right back at us, and sat there and, and stomped at them geese decoys. It was fun to watch, but I've not seen nothing like it before. You guys stepped out of the corn. He had that look on his face like, come on. Yeah. Come on. I thought he was coming. Take all you. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, y'all. Oh, and then and, uh, my buddy Chris that I hunt geese with, he got a nice fox that morning that ran through the corn. Oh. So that was cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, big day out. Yeah, I think he was coming after the decoys too. <laughs> Everything's attracted to the decoys except for the <laughs> except geese. For the geese. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you guys a quick, quick recap of my uh, rutcation. So, I mean, every year I always try and take a week off right around when the rut starts heating up. This year was no different. So, it, after this vacation, I'm I'm more than convinced that the deer are definitely smarter than me because <laughs> <laughs> we could have told you that. <laughs> because I swear. Every, uh, Kyle, yeah, the deer smarter than you. Yeah. Uh, I'm. They got tree stands yeah. right beside you that are taller than you. Yeah, I'm, you. I'm convinced of that. Because <laughs> They're up there with a the little girl. I, I kid oh. you not. Literally every move that I made that this past week of my vacation, every breath you took, yeah, every little step. Every, oh, I went yeah. Bobby Brown. Everything. See, it's completely different. I went <laughs> Sting. Yeah, the, the yours the is better. <laughs> You're saying the, the deer were one step, two step ahead of me. So 
like Paul Abdul. Yeah, you, exactly. You took one step forward. I took two, two steps, steps back. back. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we could do this all night. Go on. So, I like where this is going. Yeah. So I figured, you know what? I'm stopping with the man in the mirror. So <laughs> makes sense. So the, the first Monday out, I'm I'm out. Don't get louder because your I, story's I'm, getting interrupted. I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting excited. So you just filled story, us. The story's getting better. So that that Monday, I go out. I'm sitting in my tree stand about seven o'clock in the morning. Get a text from the wife. Oh, there's a buck in the front yard. Mind you, I just left my house at two hours before daylight to go half hour away from my house yeah. to go so well they waited till you yeah. left showed up in your yard <laughs> your yeah. wife your wife's throwing corn at him out the front yeah. door <laughs> she, she's shooting him off with a broom yeah here dude beat it so so that that was that was day one day two that should have been your sign yeah right there it's like you know what go back to work i'll save these days for later yeah <laughs> For slug season. So day two, it was all the little ones just making fun of me. You know, all the guys staying out of range. You know, just saying, hey, you can't shoot us. Yep. Watch this. Day three. Day three. Well, day three, I had an encounter with two legal bucks, but since I'm picky and I passed up on them, I... Did not shoot either of them, uh, so that that was good. Good old pass them up, Kyle. Yeah, that's well, what we call him. Yeah, that's what we all call. It. Way to go, Kyle. I'll have way more opportunity. Yeah, I'll have plenty more opportunity. I'm way smarter than these deer. They won't even know what hit them. <laughs> I so, pass deer up all the time like that when I'm eating my sandwich. If I'm having my sandwich in my hand, it's goodbye. You you came at the wrong time because I ain't stopping. Go on, get get. <laughs> Oh, the, oh, uh, but Thursday morning when I left my house, day four, I saw, I saw another buck, literally, next to my property, standing at the edge of the roadway. Oh, that's the one you sent the picture of. Uh, no, that was that was a diff- that was Thursday afternoon. Wait a minute, you didn't even tell us about day five yet. I know, I'm I'm on day four. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, which so, is just before day five. So, so day, yeah, so, I'm, so day, I'm, I'm waiting for day five. <laughs> so day four, see see a buck in the morning again at my house, just taunting me, saying, "Why are you leaving when you could have sat sat here and shot us?" So sat in the morning, saw a couple doe. Um, had tons of dough around me, and again, small buck. Thursday afternoon. Story of my season right there. Th- Thursday afternoon, I go to another spot. As I'm on my way to the spot Thursday afternoon. That was the one. Oh, I'm sorry. Nope. I'm mistaken. Thir- Thursday <sighs> afternoon, I hunted behind my house. This story is confusing. Yeah, I know. Enough. It's confusing me. Thursday It'll make sense it's only because he has 64 stands. Yeah. Thursday, <laughs> Thursday afternoon, I hunted behind my house, and... I saw a buck, but again, not a legal buck. So then, Friday, Friday day morning, five. Friday, Friday morning, I get completely skunked. I was like nuts. So then, uh, I'm glad you said yeah. how you're feeling. Nuts. Yeah, yeah. Nuts. Hey, shucks. Hey, question for you. Keep it. What's cheaper, deer nuts or beer nuts? I don't even know. <laughs> deer nuts, because they're under a buck. <laughs> <laughs> I got you there. Yeah. Day five evening hunt. <laughs> Day five evening hunt. I am en route to the spot, and it's about 1230. And what do I see at the field across from where I'm going to be hunting? A giant eight-point. 
So that's the one from the picture. Yeah, that's and the one. That that was a heavy horn buck. Yeah. That that one looked good. So the 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 taunting continued all week by us. By the the deer. Oh, by the deer. Yeah, and, and us and and you guys in the recap. So that day six Saturday sa- Saturday morning. morning, I was like, you know, morning, I, I said after all these interactions, I said I'm pulling the trail camera behind my house. Lo and behold, what happened? There was a good buck that decided he was going to come out during daylight, right underneath my stand. Friday night when I was sitting somewhere else. So, <laughs> so that's that's actually why I pull my cameras about the second week of archery season. Yeah. So, so you don't know. So yeah. yeah. So you know. Because all I do is sit in a stand and second guess myself that I should yep. be in a different stand. Uh huh. So I the cameras come out about second to third week of archery. Yep. And I'll put them back up during rifle, so I can get an inventory of what makes it through. Yeah. And like I don't want to know during that time. Don't want to know. So SMRT. After checking the trail camera, I was like, all right, now I'm on to you guys. I'm I'm in the I'm in position to put the pinch on them. Yeah. So Saturday evening. Saturday evening. I was like I was like, I'm going behind the house on this scrape that they've been hitting all week. It's right underneath my stand. Foolproof plan. Got a big old goose egg, saw nothing. Sunday so, morning. <laughs> Sunday morning. I got two deer in Indiana. Oh. <laughs> Too soon? Oh. Too soon? No, no, that's good. <laughs> so, needless to say. I think I heard about them. Yeah. Needless to say, my rutcation was not unfulfilled with deer experiences. It was just the wrong kinds. Did you have and a good time in the stand? I, it was absolutely beautiful. Per- perfect week for the weather. You can tell when you send us all those selfies, you can see the happiness on your face. Absolutely. I can tell. Yeah. That was uh that was a mental break that I needed for the year. So it was There's a a wise man once sent a picture on Instagram that said something to the effect of just because you aren't dragging one out at the end of the day doesn't mean you didn't have an epic day. Who was that guy? He wasn't very smart. I remember what he talking about? Remember where I saw that? But well, he must have been hungry too, though. It's str- <laughs> <laughs> it really it struck a chord with me. I bet for it, this year. Well, I've, I'll save it for another podcast. But I did find an amazing new place to archery hunt right by my house, and it's it's a long story, so we won't get into it. But you do have to go down the creek in the creek with chess waders. And there's some, like, floating logs and stuff like that. Long story short, I tried to sit on a floating log and hunt in the creek. And as I was trying to take a selfie of this epic spot, Uh I was done taking the blurry selfie. And I sat the phone on my waders that were just out of the water on my lap in order to put my gloves back on to put my phone away. And I saw the crossbow that was laying on the dead tree that was across the creek as I was taking a selfie, like, go to fall. So I jumped for the crossbow, and I watched the phone slowly slip off my lap. I'm not sure how many phones have gone in the water this year. <laughs> right. It's double digits. But in order to, like, reach down to the bottom of the creek to find the phone, it was... <clears throat> just enough to get my whole shoulder wet in my arm, and it was freezing cold, and then I felt the water creeping down inside the chest waders. waders. On the armpit part. And I was, I was like, oh, man, I couldn't find it. I had to go back to the house, get the brand-new headlamp that my – I have a really – I have a good friend, Will. I don't know if you told 
Found this headlamp that is 16,000 million candle power. It's got more lumens. I went down and just turned it on, and the crick started, like, bubbling. That's how uh, But anyhow, I found it, and it's the first phone I've ever dumped in the water I found, and it still worked. I was amazed. Incredible. I put it in a bag of rice for a little bit so that it would charge, but other than that, it still works. So. Yeah. So he's got that going. I can't him. really tell you. It's a really nice place. It, it's nice. I'm not saying it's close to the house, but it might be. Right, right. Right, right. Well, guys. You didn't tell us about day seven. Yeah. Changing diapers, lots of sleep. Case over. Day seven, changing diapers, lots of sleep. No hunting because we live in a state where they don't allow it on Sundays. Maybe. Maybe small game Sunday. Yes. If, I, if, hey, my, if my ba- buddy gets working on that. Ba- baby steps. We're going to have to do something. Football sucks anymore. Yeah. My, yeah. my buddy Kip Adams is going to work on that for yes. me. Yeah. Our so, buddy Kip. Well. All right. Well, this has been fabulous, guys. Thank you so much for uh, doing this every week. And uh, thank you to Kip Adams. Yeah. Thank you again for joining Kip. us on the show. It was amazing. You can find us at www.ruttenriverpursuits.com and you can find us on Instagram at Rutten at R2 Pursuits and follow us individually. That's kind of fun. Stevie's got lots of good stuff on there and mm-hmm. uh, R2 Buck as well. So you can go to uh, our website in t- in uh, www.ruttenriverpursuits.com and hit the Hashtag 2D Taxidermy. Try to get your picture up on the front of our website Absolutely. for picture of the week. Mm-hmm. And you can hear us on iTunes, Stitcher, Stitcher CastBox, Google Play. Google Play. No, CastBox is the best one. Yeah. yeah. I've still not seen it. But we're on there. And don't forget, if uh, you don't have any of those fine apps, you can also listen to our podcast on the YouTubes. So that is right. We are... Uh, we're everywhere, so if you can't find us, just look harder. We're everywhere. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks again, guys. Good luck to you. See you. See you. It's always a good slash bad sign, rifle season, when you just hear one lone shot. It's like, yep, they got that one. <laughs> <laughs> when, you yeah, hear, you know. when you hear the three or four, and a couple seconds later, you hear three or four closer, and you're like, it's on its way. Yeah, yeah. here it comes. Here, here, it here it comes. Yeah. It's still <laughs> hightailing it. You, you know, you get excited and you're yeah. like, all right. All right. It's going to be quick shooting, but uh, I'm ready. Time to limber up. <laughs>